Good morning, guys. I am coming to you live from, nope, not live, but still, I'm coming to you. So that's something, right? Um, I'm actually in my daughter's room, and you can see a lava lamp behind me. So, you know, 1990 called, and they went their style back. Everything comes back around. It's totally fine. Just kind of looks like blobs or like organs in like purple water. But anyway, to each his own or her own. So guys, it's Advent. It's the season of longing for and looking toward what we most need. Um, we find that in the Savior's birth. So the word Advent in Greek is parousia and um, in Latin Adventus, which means the coming. And so it reminds us not to rush too quickly to baby Jesus in the manger. But this time of waiting for our deepest need for the coming of Jesus um, and, and what it means for us to recognize our need and desperation, no matter how great things are in life, that we still are in need of a Savior. I really like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, that the celebration of Advent is only possible to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and look forward to something greater to come. So Advent is the longing for the promised Exodus. That's what connects it to what we are studying right now in the book of Exodus, that it's the hope of God coming to Israel <clears throat> while they are slaves in Egypt. My deliverer is coming, and my deliverer has come and is ready to fight for me and all of God's people. I love that. So to recap, Israelites were a nomadic people and they came to Egypt when there was a famine in their land. When a new Pharaoh came to power, this Pharaoh was threatened by the growing number of Hebrews in the land and so enslaved the Hebrew people and oppressed them and forced them to do this cruel work of making bricks in order to build up the enemy's empire. Yet the more that Pharaoh oppressed the Hebrews, the more that they grew. So Pharaoh took it to the next level and decreed that all Hebrew baby boys would be murdered. And so the Hebrew people cried out and God heard their cries and God paid attention and God enacted and began this process of deliverance. Of course, it's through a random baby, Moses, who's a Hebrew baby who evaded death and was saved by his mother and then eventually adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So he grew up in the palace of Pharaoh and yet maintained part of his Hebrew identity. He had some of his own growing up to do. However, he definitely had his life change when God spoke to him from a burning bush and told him that he was going to be the one who went to Pharaoh and demanded that God's people be set free. So when Moses first goes to Pharaoh, doesn't go well, and things get worse for the Hebrew slaves before they get better. Um, the text says that they are discouraged and don't believe God's promise of freedom because of their broken spirits and their harsh slavery. And this leads us to the part of the story where God enters a showdown with Pharaoh in order for all to see and know that Yahweh is the supreme God. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh on God's behalf and says, let my people go so that they may worship Yahweh. Pharaoh responds with, no, 
not going to do that. I don't know this God, and I'm definitely not going to let the people go. So then God, through Moses, does a series of miraculous signs in order to clearly communicate to Pharaoh and God's people that God means business. So there's the pattern of the plague narrative, which we're looking at today, that God says, let my people go and threatens a plague and Pharaoh refuses. And so the plague ensues. Moses threatens to send a plague if there is no relent. And yet every single time there is no relent. Now this plague threatens the Egyptians, the land, the animals, and everything else. And there are 10 of them. We have water that is turned to blood. Uh, land that is swarmed with frogs, gnats that infest and cover everything, flies, which do similar to gnats, livestock that are diseased, uh, painful boils that cover people, hail that shattered all the trees, locusts that destroyed all the crops, darkness that terrified and paralyzed Egypt, and the killing of the firstborn. So it's a pretty intense narrative here and interesting that God did not just strike down Pharaoh at the beginning, which God clearly had the power to do, or God could have bypassed Pharaoh altogether and just set the people free. So there's something about the narrative of the plagues that must be necessary to the exodus of Israel and their establishment as a people, their understanding of their own identity. Okay, so here's the deal with the plagues. The frogs, the blood, the gnats, the flies, the boils, dying livestock, these were more than just annoying inconveniences. They made life completely unlivable. I mean, they caused suffering and pain and loss and threatened existence and a sense of complete powerlessness. Of course, all those are the things that Israel had done to them by Pharaoh. Pharaoh definitely threatened the existence of Israel and caused suffering and pain and anxiety and loss and powerlessness. And yet God makes a distinction because these plagues only affect the Egyptians or the Egyptians who refuse to acknowledge Yahweh as God. So God takes the side of the powerless here <clears throat> and communicates this, that not only will God refuse to tolerate brutality and treating people as worthless and disposable, but God will also call out these actions and expose it for the evil that it is. Now God moves through these plagues, not only to show Pharaoh what he's capable of, and not only just to free Israel, but also that Israel will know, and that all of Egypt will know, and that the world will know that Yahweh is the incomparable source of life and the God of all. All that is the earth belongs to God and everything in it. So it not only settles the question of the supremacy of God, but builds Israel's faith, which they really need strong faith for the journey that they're about to take. So every plague showed God as sovereign and powerful and fiercely relentless in his endeavors to free God's people. Every plague communicated to Israel that Yahweh is a responsive God who defeats the powerful and arrogant 
and protects the vulnerable and the wounded. The plagues also showed God as the creator and sustainer of life. They weren't just magic tricks to punish Egypt. The plagues were in direct response to the world that Pharaoh was trying to create. So God, the good creator, intended a world characterized by love and justice and mercy. And Pharaoh, in his evil attempts to oppress and enslave and cause suffering, Pharaoh attempted to make his empire an exact opposite of the world that God intended, the way that the world was meant to be. So Pharaoh tried to create order, not through love, justice, and mercy, but through brutality, oppression, suffering, murder, fear, and injustice. And the plagues signal what happens in a world driven by greed and evil and threatened power, a world in which chaos reigns. Biblical scholars have suggested that the plagues are the undoing of creation, showing God as creator and Pharaoh as the distorter of creation. The plagues, then, are signs of the undoing of the creative order of God, where water is not water, and food sources are destroyed, and bodies are diseased, and animals die, and trees are shattered, and livestock um, and the crops are destroyed, and light is taken over by terrifying darkness, and death devastates everyone. If Pharaoh wants a world where order is obtained and maintained through injustice and evil and suffering, then here's what it looks like. Chaos, darkness, fear, and death. In reading the play's narrative, what I find interesting is that Pharaoh also has some tricks up his sleeve. So Moses, with his staff, strikes the Nile, the source of life, and the water turns into blood. And not just the water that's in the Nile, but over all the rivers and the buckets and the jars and the ponds, everything is turned into blood. And the fish die and it stinks and the water across all of Egypt becomes completely undrinkable. And so the Egyptians have to dig along the Nile to try to find water to drink. And yet Pharaoh has these magicians and somehow they are able to turn the water into blood as well. So God sends the next plague and Egypt is swarmed with frogs. And again, somehow Pharaoh's magicians can also produce some frogs. So Pharaoh remains unmoved. But the magicians immediately recognized the power of God when they could conjure the frogs, but they couldn't get rid of them. So they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. There's something going on here that is far beyond our capabilities and our experience. We have not only met our match, but been surpassed by the sovereignty of Yahweh. See, Pharaoh had some power, just like anything that tries to enslave us. Pharaoh's magicians could conjure up blood and water and frogs on the land, but they couldn't turn things back to normal. Pharaoh could cause chaos, but he couldn't get rid of it. Pharaoh could cause brokenness and blood and water and, and horrible living conditions, but he couldn't fix it. He could break things, but not make them right. 
So Pharaoh considered himself to be God. I mentioned this last week that he was most associated with Horus, which is the God um, that supposedly defeated chaos and established right order. And yet the plagues make it clear that Pharaoh's power is actually pretty small and his intentions are irrelevant. So he can neither defeat chaos nor establish order. He cannot even be the false god that he claims to be. We all have experiences with these false gods, with false powers, people or institutions, substances, compulsive behaviors, anything that wants our loyalty, addictive behaviors, relationships, all of these things can cause chaos, but they can't fix it. They can create brokenness and pain and anxiety and despair, but they can't heal it. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, because creating chaos is one thing, but healing it is another. Many lies, many rulers in this world will promise us order and they'll promise us deliverance and the life that we want. But the promises are empty. The things that we put our trust in cannot save us outside of God. They are distorted pictures of power. The false idols of success and reputation and codependency or shame or dishonesty will never be able to fix what needs to be healed in us. They weren't made to, and they don't have the capacity to do more than mess things up and draw us in to an enslaved place where we bow to the shame and anxiety and despair of an enemy who is not for us, but promises peace. The darkness in our old loyalties, these appealing lies that offer happiness and relief, don't give up on us easily either. They're pretty relentless. They don't want to be seen as limited in power. Sexism, racism, greed, comparison, and competition, all of these twist our sense of who we are and our sense of worth. They try to convince us that we are not the beloved of God. They try to tell us that we are not good enough and that we're not free to be who we were made to be. The plagues are a platform for all to see that God alone can heal and God alone can rescue and establish order. All the other sources that we have clung to will never meet our deepest needs or bring the freedom for which we've been created. The power of everything in this world has limits. And this is contrasted with the limitless and powerful God whose strength and courage and wisdom and love have no limits, no ceiling and no floor, no walls. And all of that love is given to us. So this week, may we know the God who is the source of creation and life and daily offers us new beginnings and new mercies. May we allow God to loosen our grip on that which creates chaos. May we allow God to give us courage and hope in place of defeat and despair as we wait in this season of Advent for the deliverance we crave and are desperate for 
May God remind us of the infinite possibilities that are born of faith. Grace and peace to you, my friends and family.